Good afternoon, this is Gary Kavanagh here on TRSI. I'm here today with my friend and colleague, Michael Dwyer. Today is the 8th of the 11th, 2020. You probably knew the last part of that, or God help you. Michael, the American election, still grinding on. All of the papers are full of it. It is the only source of news because we are effectively just an appendage to America because we share the same language as them. Um, I've really enjoyed seeing Irish media get into the spirit of the American election by producing endless amounts of horseshit about the American election from people who have no idea what they're talking about. Well, why change now? You know, it's why change the habits of a lifetime. The, the analysis we had before the election was of such high quality, with a, a wide variety and diversity of voices giving us an insight into America from she sea to shining sea. Was it the last show they did where they had uh, that small mystery of Irish life, Fintan O'Toole, along with a bunch of others, and they couldn't manage to find a single person that was uh, willing to go on and admit to supporting Donald Trump or to see, wished to see the re-election of Donald Trump. 70 million Americans were willing to get out and vote for the man. And yet RTE couldn't in conscience find one person to come and make the argument for him. Is that not usually when they just ask Seth Tillman to do it? That's usually when they ask Seth Tillman. Maybe Seth was busy or maybe it was Sabbath or something. Yeah, I think like it is. It is a sort of, you see Seth on a show and you're like, ah, RTE needed someone to talk about Trump. Yeah, I understand that obviously there, we have things like Pay, PayPal and Facebook and Google and... Microsoft and lots and lots of Americans there, but none of them would be uh, Trump supporters, or at least none of them would be willing for the sake of their employment prospects to admit to being Trump supporters. But, you know, there are also American tax lawyers hanging around the gaff, advising people about setting up businesses here. Surely there must have been, in amongst the various tax lawyers, one Republican. I'm sure there is a branch. In fact, I know there is a branch of Republicans abroad in Dublin. Could have given them a shout and said, lads, could you find someone? But it was just all too much, Gary. It was all too much. So anyway, that was then. This is now. Joe has... Can we say Joe's won the election? Georgia has actually... Is going to a recount. So we can... Everyone is now saying Biden is president-elect. And yeah, this this is this is not a... I'm just going to say something here. Just, just on... That annoys me. In America, they have a tendency to do this when the media organizations basically have called everyone rather than the votes themselves having been all counted and put together and, uh, and attributed. And so, yes, Joe Biden is, is the president-elect. I don't think anyone doubts Joe Biden is going to win the election, but it annoys me that they announce it at the behest of media companies as opposed to the states going, all of the votes are finished now. Yeah, and then at the end of the whole process, the Secretary of State comes in and certifies the result. Yeah, and that hasn't happened. So, I suppose that you probably have to wait a lot. It's just a funny system. It's a very different system to ours. This is what they do. I mean, it's an odd system, Gary, where you have an election at the beginning of November. You lose the election, but you stay president for another two and a half months. But I see Donald Trump talking about the election. There is a little part of me that's like, is he actually that angry? Or is this just he knows he's there for, you know, another nearly you know, uh, until the end of the year? And he just wants something. It's well into January before the before the, the, the transfer of power takes place. Um, I, these days, they say you have the transition. I can't imagine the transition was that big a deal in 1800 that it would have taken this long. But anyway, 
it's the way they do it. I, <laughs> the thing with Trump is you don't know, you just don't know. Is he genuinely outraged? Is he this, and I'm quoting here some of the opinions we've seen in the Irish media, is he such a narcissistic psychopath that uh, he can't deal with the very notion that he's been defeated? Or is he just trolling everybody? Is this just a massive troll? I mean, Gary, you saw it, and it was fantastic. They're all talking about the fact that the man is yet again attacking democracy, trying to engage, trying to it's launch a, a, a relentless assault on the institutions that hold up America. He's plotting to bring down America. And what did he do? He went to play golf. Now, I'm not, uh, you know, I'm not sure how one would bring down all of the democratic institutions of America at once. But I feel where I planning to do that, I personally would go to an office, maybe, or at least somewhere that had a phone. I feel a phone is important in destroying democratic institutions. Good Wi-Fi. Golf balls, traditionally less required. No, it, it seems like an odd place to go if you're engaging in the process of bringing down the world's most important and powerful democracy. But that is apparently what he is doing, but that's what he's been doing for four years. I just, I love the tone of, you know, he's not going to go and he is the enemy and it's just, he's... You know, he's going to take us all with him and he's just evil. And then you're like, what's he doing now? He's golfing. I mean, there are people all over social media apparently seriously saying that they've been hearing word from inside the camp that he has promised that he's going to barricade himself inside the Oval Office and that the Secret Service are going to have to physically remove him. I mean, listen, if it happens, grand, it'll be good television. But I can't... Yeah, in two months when his term actually ends. 20th of January, I think it is. So I've, I've read some doozies of articles from Irish papers. One or two that are good, most terrible, because we don't... Irish journalists and Irish people don't really understand American politics, I've generally found. And it's quite difficult to understand American politics without having actually been to America and seen what the average American... Not like the Americans who leave America, but the actual average Americans are like, because uh, they are a unique people. Yeah, but even then, I mean, this is the thing, like, who is average American? Is it someone in Iowa or someone in Louisiana or someone in Arizona, somewhere in Washington? It's a very big country with lots of very, very different people. I, at the end of it, the same kinds of things ultimately matter to most ordinary Americans that matter to most ordinary people. The economy, are there jobs? Is there peace on the streets? Is crime being managed? Are they going to be attacked by Canada any minute now? Are things getting better? Are things getting worse? No, yes, there will be. The, obviously, America has its own particular culture, and that will in, in and a culture. I think you, the point you you said we we our language. I think was it George Bernard Shaw said we're two countries separated by a, a common language, or that was referring to Britain. And there is a problem always, I think, with dealing with a country that appears to speak the same language as you, that you, you you project certain assumptions onto them. It's like, in a much in a smaller way, and I, I've, I've noticed this all my life, Irish people except and going to England and English people coming to Ireland, all, particularly you have to spend a long time or to live, will eventually have a moment, usually in the, f the first few months, where they suddenly go, shit, this is a foreign country. This isn't, if you're talking about England, this isn't just a kind of a bigger, richer, more industrial version of Ireland. No, 
these people are actually foreigners. They go around pretending not to be by cleverly speaking the same language as us most of the time and eating a lot of the similar foods to us and they have brown sauce and bovril. So basically they must be the same. They don't have white pudding, but other than that, basically the same. But then something will happen and you think, oh, these people are just really foreign. They're kind of weird. I know a lot of my, uh, my conversations I've had with English friends of mine who lived over here for years. There's that moment where you think, it's not just being cute, they're actually different. And I think in the United States, because it's longer, it's farther away, and because of its history and because of it, its evolution, that's even truer. It is, it, in some respects, a very foreign place. But because we consume so much Americana, because we watch their movies, we watch their TV, we, we listen to their music, we have this notion that somehow we understand them. We have, a, we have a grasp of them, but and maybe we do to an extent, but I think it's a limited extent. We get a lot of their culture. The problem is English-speaking world is sort of encultured by American culture, mm-hmm. but misses a lot of the parts of it that don't really translate into their media. Um, like the staggering naivety of the average American. Naivety, you think? Oh, yeah. Americans really believe things. Like, they believe things strongly. And that makes them incredibly easy to lie to. I suppose maybe they have higher levels of trust. Oh, they do. They're like, And it's they are a high-trust society. But I've been to other high-trust societies that were nowhere like America. Because America, they just believe stuff. <laughs> Whereas in Ireland, there's like, ah, oh, I'm sure, yeah, oh, absolutely, you'll get to that, sure. And, you know, it, it'll rain fire. Whereas the Americans are like, no, oh, no, that's, that's excellent, Jesus. Do you need money for that? <laughs> Uh, so actually, there's many positive things about America. On the articles, my favourite genre of article I've seen in the Irish newspaper is the article about the impact of the American election or what it tells us about Donald Trump that was obviously written before the election. Yeah. Donald Trump won the, the highest amount of minority voters since uh, 1960 for the Republican Party. A record number of Americans voted. And then you read all these things and they're like a professor talking about vote suppression. Someone talking about the racism of Donald Trump and how he's deepening racial divides. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, you can say that, but minority voters voted for him. And what what's your point here? That you, a white person, is going to say he's deepening racial divides regardless of that? Yeah, well, we all know, because it's been explained to us, that actually what happens is that very often groups that have been oppressed will, for various psychic reasons, identify with their oppressor. It's a form of sort of, I suppose, social or cultural Stockholm syndrome, you know? And this is apparently what's been happening. Uh the numbers went from 14% of black black men to 18% of black men voted for Trump. From Now, the numbers are on black women are a bit, so, so, something like 2% to 8% of uh, black women voted for him. Uh, 33% of Hispanics voted for him. But then, we, I mean, we mentioned the last thing, one of the things that shows as well is that the way that we use these phrases, they don't mean anything. 71% of Cubans who are Hispanics voted for Trump. But 71% of Puerto Ricans, who are also Hispanics, voted for Biden. Venezuelans, Nicaraguans, Colombians and Venezuelans tend to vote for Trump. And in some states, like in Arizona and New Mexico, Hispanics, who are mostly Mexicans there, voted for Biden. But in Texas, in one of the wonderful ironies of the whole thing, which you've been talking, you talked about before, was the glorious possibility that 
if Trump had managed to pull off a victory, it would have been in face of the fact that he lost the uh, white the white male vote, but topped it up with a Hispanic vote. And that's ex- essentially what gave him the, the comfortable, ultimately the comfortable margin of victory in Texas, was how incredibly well he did with with border border communities in Texas, with Latino communities on the, the Mexican border. And he did really, really well there, even though he lost in the suburb the suburbs around Houston, Texas, Dallas, Fort Worth, uh, and uh, Austin, places like that, Corpus Christi. So Biden, Joe Biden, was elected by white men. I mean, the traditional way of doing things in America. It is the traditional way of doing things. Now. We, we we talked about that before, so you don't rehash that too much. But the the one of the things I don't know if you were uh, if you were following the the reaction on Twitter uh, and other social medias to the uh, when it became clear that the Trump administration was over. <laughs> now, I'm I'm not saying for a minute that this is an exclusive uh, reaction of the left to 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 Trump, and that there wouldn't be, have been perhaps similar reactions. Possibly at the end of the Obama administration, I had or if Obama had lost an election, but for example, uh, uh, the Democratic representative from New York, Casio Cortez, tweeted, uh, "Maybe I'm overreading this, but is there not something vaguely sinister about this?" When she says, "Ask the, or ask the question, is anyone archiving these Trump sycophants?" for when they try to downplay or deny their complicity in the future. I foresee decent probability of many deleted tweets, writings and photos in the future. She wants to make a list, Gary. I mean, she's a bit behind the curve, Michael, because I've already seen uh, a couple of websites go up, which are lists of as many people in the Trump administration as they can find. You know, donors, staffers, campaign staff, everything. There's a... A guy, uh, Ben Malias at Malias Lab, who tweeted, if you, are hire, if you hire someone who remained with Trump admin after the election, be on notice. You will be held accountable by Midas Touch, and we will ensure that you are exposed. Yeah, I think societies are in a healthy place when people start collecting uh, lists of their political opponents. Yeah, and also that sense of you know, magnanimity and loss that somebody like Sitoure, again, another blue tick on Twitter with 244,000 followers saying, if you're a Trumper, I hope the pain and anxiety you feel now is excruciating. You voted against America and for a cult leader who has no redeeming or animal qualities. He's a cretin who cares nothing about this country. You deserve all the pain and more. See, I'm sure there are Trumpers out there who are feeling all sorts of it. Things like that, but I have a feeling that this whole notion of pain and anxiety is rather more the purview of the progressives. I mean, remember the meltdowns that we saw. I mean, which is the real reason why anybody over here is desperately sad about Donald losing is the fact that we didn't get to relive the absolute meltdown <laughs> that we saw in places like NBC and CNN the last time from the commentariat when they realised that the awful Trump, the dreadful orange man, was actually going to win it. Yeah, I've had a, I've had a couple of people like send me stuff on social media trying to, you know, just being like Trump lost, lol, or you know, just joking about how I must be terribly sad. I'm like, I don't really care to be honest. I know a lot of people here who would have been, because that's the kind of people we are. That would have been 
sympathetic to the idea of a Trump victory, shall we say. I don't honestly know anybody who was massively invested in it. And yet I see so many of my compatriots on social media who are, who are rooting for Biden who seem to be absolutely, I mean, they're utterly engaged beyond, I would have thought, a normal level for a foreign election. People say, I'm, before the elections, tweeting out, saying, oh my God, I'm so nervous, like, I'm so frightened of what might be going to happen and all this thing. I mean, the Americans who are freaking out and who Donald Trump seems to have legitimately driven mad, I at least give them some credit because they are Americans. Yeah. They have to deal with him. But I've seen Irish academics and Irish reporters tweeting about how sad they were when he was there and how happy they are now and that they were crying when they heard that Joe Biden had won. And you sort of just go... Why? Yeah, I, well, I, I saw a person. I'm in tears. Uh, a, a, a prominent person involved with the national broadcasters saying, I'm in tears here, reflecting on the victory of uh, Joe and Kamala. Really? What, what's wrong with you? I mean, the savagery of it. Hey, listen, I, I suppose what I find more interesting is that, our, that this, these tweets, right? They're public, and they're published, they're published, obviously. And the people who tweet them are obviously expressing their own feelings. This is how they feel. This is how they see Trump. That's fine. But many of them are people who are actively engaged in progressive politics. And they don't seem to have any sense that this kind of thing is one of the reasons why, at least moderates in the Democratic Party believe, they didn't win the Senate, they lost seats, in the House, and that Biden didn't have as big a victory as they had widely expected to have. Michael, how could you say that? So many of the candidates uh, backed by the Democratic Socialists won. Yes, I saw, I saw uh, for example, one candidate running for the school board in New York unopposed did win. Somebody else in the school board in uh, won in... Uh, in Los Angeles, I saw somebody won on the, a city council seat in Portland. So, it's massive result of, of the 32 candidates that they had endorsed. <laughs> These are some of the candidates they had. It's not exactly what you call mega politics. And some of them lost as well. Ocasio-Cortez is absolutely certain, and not just her, that actually the mistake the Democrats made was by not going far and progressive enough that was going to be the response, regardless of what the results were. It's like a journalist who's already got it written. Or do you remember during when the the leaving cert, when the um, when the projected grades came out, and there was an article by an academic, I think the day after, say talking about the systemic disenfranchisement of women inside the system. Yeah, yeah. Ignoring the fact that by that point the uh, the Department of Education had come out and said that actually the projected grades were systemically biased towards girls. Because of uh, in bias from their teachers. Well, yeah, that did have a, a, again the feeling of an article that had been written, and you know, when it was written, and at that stage, oh God, was was it worthwhile rewriting it? I mean, the thing with the the Democratic Socialists, yeah, they did really well when you look at the amount of the people they put forward for particular things or that they uh, came behind who got elected. But there's um, an old example that's used in statistics mostly to illustrate the danger of just using statistics when you don't know what's actually happening. And it's if you have two surgeons 
and one has a 95% success rate and one has a 70% success rate, you would think that you should go for the surgeon with the 95% success rate. Mm -hmm. However, what could happen here is that surgeon only takes the easiest cases. Yes. So if you have anything deeply wrong with you, he is not, not uneducated on it, but he doesn't have the practical experience. Whereas a surgeon who is doing cutting edge work in the field, one of the absolute top, because they are dealing with significantly more complicated cases, there are more failures, more patients die. But on a like-for-like scale, they are head and shoulders above anyone else. Yes. And it's, it's very easy to just present the raw statistics. And then if you don't actually look into how they're put together, you go, well, it's this chap. This guy is perfect. And it turns out they're actually absolute shit. Yeah, I, I think that we, we don't have to be even that sophisticated in, on, in picking apart the claims of the Democratic Socialists to see that... The, even percentage-wise, they weren't even that good. But and also the, the nature of the, as you said, it's a question of difficulty. The kinds of contests they were running in, even when they were running against somebody, they were running in places, some of the safest, absolutely nailed-on seats you could possibly find in the country. It wasn't like they were they were going into deep Republican territory, preaching the... Uh, the gospel according to Gramsci and Foucault and coming out with their little red books and said, we have triumphed for the the workers have heard what we had to say and they have understood where their interests lie. And now they have joined us in the revolution. That didn't happen. It just, it's a funny thing. We said the last time, but the more you look at the, the, the discussion that's happening in the media after, and listen, we don't know, we don't know what it's going to be like in six months' time or a year's time, how things will evolve or change. But in a weird way, we're not. This this victory seems to be in a opening up fissures in the Democratic Party about the direction they need to go in, and it seem and the, the Republicans seem to be working towards coming together again and cohering in a way that they were. The, the, the splits and the divisions that uh, grew out of the nomination of Trump four years ago, they seem to be healing over. And there seems to be a, a recognition that the party needs to go in a certain direction. And that's going to be more about being multi-ethnic, multiracial, appealing to working class voters, to being socially conservative and being a, bit, a, a little bit populist. And there seems to be a broad consensus about that. Now, there'll be disputes about details and policy, but the Republicans seem to be coming together. At precisely the time, having won the presidential election, the Republicans, the Democrats seem to be coming apart. We, I mean, we talked about before, but you, you, you remember there was a lot of live tweeting going on in that caucus for the, 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 the Democratic yeah. parties. And there were savage disagreements going on there. And really bitter recriminations from the moderates about... But the, left, but, the, and, but the thing we know for certain, I believe, one thing we know for certain is the, dem the left of the party will not change. The progressives will only double down on their message. They are absolutely convinced of their message. They know that the only problem with the message is that it is being compromised and watered down and people haven't fully understood the necessity to reach out, to really go for the radical alternative, 
because that's what will wake people up rather than just living in this kind of mediocre centrist compromise they will not change and if we're right and the fact is that america is ultimately a party of is a country really of centrists uh, where the elections are decided in the middle that message is going to be is not going to stop alienating those voters and when it comes to two years time and we're looking at joe biden trying to take the senate and trying to hold the house to in order to get something done as president that kind of ramped up progressive message isn't going to do him any favors at all well i mean the chance of there's a fairly significant chance of joe biden just due to his age being dead before the next presidential uh, election so Ah, he's only in his 70s. You know, if you're a man in your 70s in the United States and you're rich and you're the president and you're getting the kind of health care he's getting, I think you have a decent chance of getting a, hitting 80. Uh, it depends how good your heart is, I would think. Well, how good is his heart? Does he have a heart problem? I don't know, but we're about to find out. Well, we'll see. I would have thought that he seems to be, in, in, I mean, if you're talking about physical health, he seems like a slimmer, fitter man than Donald. Donald doesn't look like the kind of man that was uh, that spends a lot of time in the gym. Yeah, but Donald Trump is also the only American president I've ever seen who comes out of the presidency looking younger than he goes in. It's but it is true, isn't it? It's bizarre. I mean, did you see the the campaign videos they were putting up in the last week? And it was just Donald Trump dancing bizarrely. And looking like he was having a great time, and they just put YMCA behind it. Yeah, YMCA. And that was from the official Donald Trump campaign, and he was retweeting it. Man looked like he was having a ball. I don't know if you know that they saw that there were large, very large groups of Biden uh, supporters celebrating in front of the White House and in other places and sharing bottles of champagne. In, and they were playing, indeed, in this a slightly taunting, ironic way, I suppose. They were playing YMCA as their as their theme tune. Uh, not to be always being picky, 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 but yet again, I couldn't help but notice that all the commentary about all these gatherings was, was you know, that it was about the, the good-natured, good-humoured celebrations of America and Americans taking back their country, blah, blah, blah. Nobody's saying... There are 10,000 people here packed together like sardines in the middle of a pandemic. What the hell is going on here? Which you know, we, we heard quite a bit of when it was Trump doing uh, his campaign rallies because he did get a lot of people at his campaign rallies. Uh, th that represented a threat. Apparently Biden supporters getting together doesn't. I suppose most of them are wearing masks. And if you wear a mask and you share a bottle of champagne, that apparently is, that will keep you safe. On Russian news, actually. I assume the listener is aware of this Leo the Leak thing, where Leo is accused of improperly leaking a document to uh, from the document involved a negotiation between the Irish government and a medical trade union, uh, a GP's trade union, which Leo is alleged to have leaked to the head of a rival GP's trade union. Now, Leo did certainly send the document. But the Village magazine, which first reported this, is explicitly saying that he broke the law. Now, in a previous episode, we went through it and I said, look, on a, on a plain text reading of it, which is very different from a legal reading, but in a plain text reading of it, I don't think he broke the law they're discussing. And in fact, I can see three ways he could immediately defend himself and say, no, he didn't break the law. In fact, I think the big problem for Fine Gael now is that Leo accepted he acted improperly 
And he absolutely shouldn't have done that. He should have just went, it was proper, it was perfect, and it was in the state interest. And it doesn't matter what channel I use to put the document across, because I have the ability to make those choices. And there's no legal constraint upon it. Yeah. But he didn't, and now it's become a rolling thing. Sinn Féin have a uh, motion of no confidence. It was meant to go in on Tuesday. I'm told there's been a procedural fuck-up, and... They don't sit in the convention center on Tuesday and they can't get enough people into the doll. So there won't actually be, it won't actually be possible to have a motion of no confidence on Tuesday. So I imagine they'll reschedule that to Wednesday and that's a little bit embarrassing, but it is what it is. The guy who came out with that leak is a guy called uh, Shea Bowes or Bowes. Right. And when I, when I saw this leak, there were, I mean, there were screenshots, there was stuff that looked like it come directly from conversations between Leo and uh, a doctor called Mahio Tutal, who was the head of one of these GPs unions. But I didn't know anything about Che Boys. Right. And I was like, who is this guy? Um, because, you know, he's, he's putting out information that could destabilize the government. And it's always interesting to know who these people are and why they're doing it. Yeah. Even if the information is good, it's good to know why it's there in the first place. Because someone made a choice to leak it, and they made a choice to leak it in a particular way, and they made a choice to leak it at a particular time. Mm -hmm. And those are all interesting. And um, I couldn't find a lot about him. He was involved with the village, but to what degree was difficult, or how long he'd been there. And I had heard he was ex-military, but when I asked people I knew who were involved with the Irish military... No one knew him, which, I mean, you know, can happen. It's it's a not a large organization, but it's large enough that... Yeah, you go, yeah you're not going to know every Tom, Dick and Harry. So I, uh, I went looking, and during the week I was able to dig up a, an old account of his, an old anonymous account of his, which had some, uh, shall we say, colourful views on matters ranging from the war in the Ukraine to Vladimir Putin to some stuff about homosexuals that I'm not sure if it would be considered homophobic or exactly what it would do. And, um, yeah, I, I wrote it up as a gripped article. The headline of which I did not pick, because the headline is Gay Sex, Russia and Sinn Féin, The Secret Obsessions of Radker Whistleblower uh, Shea Bowes. So just again, I didn't write the headline. If you're ever angry with a journalist for a headline, they almost certainly didn't. Write it. Still, sounds like it'll make a good miniseries. It's, uh, he's, he's a funny kind of guy. He, he's Going through his Twitter, you, you get the sense that he's a kind of particular type. I'll put a link to the article in the, the bottom of this. But one thing I did want to mention is, following its publication, I started taking tons of shit from people. Yeah, On both why? the left and the right. Most of whom opposed to Finnegan. And the basic gist of it was this. He had done, he was a whistleblower and Ireland has been terrible to whistleblower and people were quoting, saying things like, well, you know, look what happened to Morris McCabe, mm. stuff like that. Then there were sort of, you know, you've been bought out, you're just looking to protect Fine Gael. And uh, the Gript was now on the side of mainstream press and what was the point of Gript if they were just going to parrot the mainstream line. So I just thought I, I wanted to explain just the listener of the podcast, just as a sort of background thing, what had actually happened. I found his account, went through it, and thought it was interesting. I, because I'm one of the editors of Gript, I'm basically able to 
go in and go, I want to write on this, and I'll just be let do it. So I made the decision to write on this. I largely made the decision to publish it. And I did it not because of... Uh, I particularly wanted to attack Shay, or because, as some people said, he is anti-Israel and I'm quite notably pro-Israel. If I were to write a story about everyone who is anti-Israel in Ireland, it would be most of Ireland. Yeah, it'd be yeah, pretty tedious. What it actually was, was the extent of the pro-Russia stuff he puts up, and the nature of it. So, I mean, I think I've talked before about how... While I think that there are countries which must just the ideologies and ruling systems can't mesh together, they'll yeah. never be aligned. And there are countries that could and arguably should have closer alignment. And I would generally say Russia and the West should overcome a lot of their differences. But at the same time, I accept that Russia and the West have done some shit to each other and are continuing to do some shit to each other that makes that quite difficult. Yeah, there, there's a bit of history there. So the fact that Shea is pro-Russia in general is not something I would find particularly offensive. However, he was writing stuff about how uh, Malaysia Flight 17 hadn't been shot down by the Russians. He was talking about conspiracy theories on it. I mean, he put up a tweet saying that um, it was obvious that the killing of a Russian opposition leader had been done to discredit Putin. Oh, right. Yeah, okay. And like at that point, you're like... And that's kind of self-proving, because if more opposition leaders keep dying publicly, you're like, oh, they're just dropping them like flies to bring them down. Some of them are probably committing suicide just to undermine the great leader. And then, of course, there was some stuff that he had written himself on his main account talking about the need for transparency in politics. And so I decided, oh, I think I'll, uh, I'll make this public. And then people can look at it. And the intent was not to undermine or demonize a whistleblower although i think comparing him to maris mccabe is, is facile in the extreme it was to give people more information so they could go why is this being put forward and who is putting it forward yeah and actually one interesting thing on the russian front leo and um our former minister for housing earlier in the year scuttled the expansion of the russian embassy they've been looking to expand the buildings and the general consensus was that the expansion was to allow, uh, was to increase their capability to spy in the country, particularly on tech firms, because Ireland is the home of, or the European headquarters of many of the tech firms. And Leo killed it. So that also added an interesting element, because this guy is not just pro-Russian, or he's not just pro-Vladimir Putin, which you see among some people who are more socially conservative, they will agree with Putin's more socially conservative movements and push back against a lot of sort of the identity culture. Yeah. This was someone who was way above that. And that's, I found particularly interesting, considering that Leo had pissed off the Russians in relation to their spying affairs in the year. Which is not to say there's any link between those two, but just that I was found it interesting, and I thought bringing that to people's attention might be good. And uh, yeah, I spent a day just eating shit from people. Because people assume that you mean a particular thing. Everybody has their own particular agenda. Well, certainly the kinds of people that pay a lot of attention to this kind of thing. Are, you're going to certain subset of them have their own agenda. And they will always assume, and it's a human thing, that you're actually speaking to them. 
that and therefore this is some in some way about their agenda rather than what you actually say it's about because they know because you're you're using code or it's dog whistles or if it's 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 there but it's layered it's subtextual but they can spot it it's it's very hard for us to imagine that the that other people actually have different priorities or different sets of concerns to the ones we have because obviously those concerns that we have are the most important concerns that everybody should have so you know you will get this i saw some of the stuff was i thought was bizarre was it the idea that oh, gripped had sold out and that was just another platform for the mainstream media and I, well no it is true gary let's face it we all know this i mean i, I don't know if this is the place to break the news but you are actually a finnegan apparatchik who's paid vast sums of money by mount street to go around planting these strange stories that actually end up helping finnegan oh yeah i mean this is deep cover deep 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 deep, 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 deep. years in the making yeah, yeah. Well, that's why I say so many horrible things about Finnegale politicians. It's all part of the cover. It's part. Of, it's what. It's. I think what isn't it? What they in John Le Carre calls it's your story. I really care about helping Finnegale, but I think this is interesting, particularly as Village has said they're going to release more stuff, mm. and it's going to come from the same guy. Oh, so he's got links to Sinn Fein, from what I can see here. At least he's very positive towards them. Sinn Féin, I believe, the last time any sort of sanctions on Russia came up, were very, very much against that sort of thing happening. They would be, I think, one of the more pro-Russian parties in the doll. It not it odd the kinds of bedfellows that people end up getting for different historical or historical reasons? You look at Sinn Féin, a very modern left-wing, socially liberal progressive party, you would have thought that Putin would be very much the bad guy for them. And yes, there seems to be some kind of sympathy, I suppose. he's a It's a balance from sort of neoliberalism and globalization. And it's he's an alternative voice. It's a different... I mean, do you remember in 2015, there was, a, there was an EU uh, motion, a resolution basically saying that uh, it condemned human rights abuses in Russia and it also commented on the annexation of um, Crimea. Yeah. And I remember that uh, Ming Flanagan voted against it and said the EU was, you know, it was none of the EU's business. But I also remember that all of the Sinn Féin MEPs abstained. Yeah. Didn't vote against it. So you couldn't say that they, you know, that they didn't support it, but just abstained, just left the floor. Hmm. And to be fair, you know, that's perfectly within their rights. Of course. Um, it is, it is. Now, they've also voted against other European Parliament resolutions calling for, uh, that relate to election interference and misinformation by Russians. Is Vladimir perceived as being, well, you know, in the old days, he was a loyal servant of the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics and... Sinn Féin comes out of that traditional Marxist-Leninist milieu. I think there's there's a couple of things here. There's one, yeah, there's the historical links to the Communist Party, but that's mostly gone. One thing, on two things on top of that. One is I think that a lot of people who got really into socialism, communism, more kind of extreme left-wing thoughts, 
a lot of the work on that is Russian. And a lot of the guys I know who got into that sort of thing ended up reading a lot of Russian history and Russian cultural works. Mm -hmm. I think that's kind of just positively disposed them, or at least made them slightly more aware of uh, Russian interests. And then on top of that, you have the fact that to a lot of the left, Russia was a great power, but not an imperialist great power. It's, it's perceived as not having been a colonizer. I, I can understand that that might be a perception. I think that if you ask the Georgians and the Armenians and the Ossetians and the Tartars and the, Uzbek, the Uzbeks and the Finns and the Lithuanians and the Latvians and the Estonians and the Poles and later on the Czechs and the Hungarians and the Kazakhs and the Uzbeks and so on and so forth, they might have had slightly different feelings about that notion that Russia manages to get across 11 time zones starting out of the the principality of Moscow or the, or the Muscovy and ends up getting all the way to basically Alaska without ever having been an empire. And I mean, it's a small point and maybe it doesn't actually speak to anything, but it's worth remembering that what we called the Tsar, they called the Emperor. And the Emperor is usually the guy in charge of an empire. Still, they were not seen as the sort of power that you saw in Britain or you saw in America. They were they are generally seen as being fundamentally different. And I but think the big thing but Gary isn't the big of. thing is they weren't America. They were the balancing power to the United States and the United States for large parts of the left historically after the Second World War the the left is the great Satan the, the United States is the great Satan it is this great imperial power and the worst thing about it is that it does its imperialism in this dishonest new way that it doesn't necessarily go in and plant the flag and say okay we own this now but it it's a more dangerous more insidious form of imperialism it's an economic economic imperialism it's an economic and cultural colonialism so that's why very often these people will support the kinds of laws you say you see in france where for example you can they limit the number of hollywood films that can be shown in cinemas there has to be a certain amount of french cinema that takes that is that is part of the 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 uh, the package for consumption for for the for the French people every year, they protect their language from Americanisms and from the encroachment of the American as opposed to the English language. Also, the Americans fought in all those throughout. The Americans fought against Castro, Castro in Cuba. They fought against the plucky Vietnamese in Vietnam. They supported. Uh, the right-wingers in Angola, they were implicitly or explicitly involved in supporting the regime in South Africa and designating the ANC as terrorist organization. They support Israel very, very much so. And I think for the Irish left, the real hot-button one has, is and has become, and there are also historical connections with the PLO and organizations in Ireland, that Israel which once upon a time would have been seen very kindly by, say, mod the moderate left in Ireland, the Labour movement in Ireland would have seen, you know, Zionist did the, the, that Labour, so that Labour social democratic Zionist movement in Israel would have been seen 
use positive, but Israel is now just about the worst thing you can imagine. And the United and the United States is responsible for maintaining Israel in, in its existence. Anwar Sadat was a great hero of the anti-colonialist left, and of course Sadat, or not Sadat, sorry, uh, Nasser, and Nasser takes the, the 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 canal back and all that, and then is attacked by the the last remnants of the imperialist powers of the, the French and the English. So Israel, Israel is a real bad guy, and the Americans are responsible ultimately for Israel, and the Russians. I mean, we, I could never follow it, but the politics in the last 10 years about the Russian activity in the Middle East has been part of that story as well. The war in Syria, the relationships with Iran, it's all very complicated and murky and difficult to follow. But whatever it is, it is again Russia being a counterweight, a counterbalance to the, to the power of the United States and all the little petty powers that just crowd underneath the petticoats of the Americans, like the British, like the French, like the Germans, and whoever, like ourselves. I mean, the Soviet Union was excellent at, and modern Russia remains quite good at, presenting its actions in a very particular way and just hammering that position home. You know, so, you know, it's, it's not invasion. It's actually a protection of sovereignty. Yeah, but... <laughs> Well, oh, come on. Anyway, yes, that's what they said. But that's what everybody says. You know, that's what the Americans said when, when, when the Americans went into Iraq. Well, the, the Americans believe it when they go into these places as well. But we don't believe them. We just say it's all about oil. Um, I've never bought that. The amount of money and lives the Americans have expended on oil, they would have been able to buy up the Saudi supply of oil for the next 50 years. But there you go. Um... Also, the Russian, not just to up, the Russian occupation of Afghanistan, also, by the way, it's pretty hard to construe as anything except a fairly gross piece of imperialism, but there you go. That period is actually a fascinating period of Soviet history. The Soviet Empire and the uh, graveyard of empires, which is Afghanistan's wonderfully uplifting name. And the old days when Kabul was a lovely place with the almond trees in blossom. Anyway... So yeah, that was that was the. Just wanted to give some background on that story. It was interesting actually, and this is another interesting thing about journalism. I'd found the account during the week, and I was going through. I'd cataloged all of the tweets I thought were interesting, or you know, at least worth looking at, and I'd been going through the accounts that it had interacted with because a lot of like heavy conspiratorial, heavy like Russian propaganda. I mean like pro-Russian, I mean, like, openly Russia propaganda yeah, um, kind of stuff. And then uh, another account on Twitter also found the account and publicly posted it. So I thought I would have about a week to drag together anything that might be in these accounts. And at that stage, like when you're doing that sort of work, you're like 95% done. You're just doing this to see if there's anything particularly interesting. But then when it went public, you're kind of going... Fuck. So someone else might see that from one of the other newspapers and then they'll publish the story before you, in which case you've just wasted a load of time. So I had to, I hadn't planned to publish it until the middle of next week with a little bit more on some of the accounts. And instead I just published it today fairly early just to get it out. Just because like, it's factually correct. I'm just going to call them for one of the 
wonderfully awkward phone calls that you get to have when you're writing a largely negative piece about someone. Mm-hmm. You want to give them a chance to respond and just get it up. Uh, they are awfully uncomfortable because you're calling to someone. And most people are quite happy to have a chat with you. And then you can hear them realize what's happening. You can just hear the tone of sort of, oh, oh, I said that, did I? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And you're going to tell people I said that, are you? I say, and you, 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 okay, you have proof of that then. Oh, and you're like, I'm terribly sorry to do this to you, but it just needs to be done. I'm, I'm too conscientious for this job, Michael. You are far too, far too conscientious. You're, 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 you're an innocent man out there amongst all of these cynics and wolves, just beavering away doing your, doing your job, and you don't get, you just, you see, all these people, these bad faith people, they don't understand that you are just this lily white journalist, just looking like a pig truffling for the truth. I mean, I think that is. The problem is that I don't dislike the people I write about because I dislike very few people. Mm-hmm. But even people I'll mock heavily. I don't. I on a deep level, most of these people I don't mind. And it would just—it's a lot easier to just write something horrible about something or something that you know could be damaging to them mm-hmm. if you hate them. Whereas I'm talking to people, and I'm like, yeah, I know. Like, I, like it's just—it's going to be what it is, though. Like before we drop, before we 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 finish up, there's just—it's not exactly news but it's a, a piece of i wanted to ad, ad, advert to the fact that there was a rather I for, I for me a rather sad piece of news in the middle of all of the brouhaha uh from the american election it was announced uh yesterday that the former chief rabbi of the united kingdom rabbi uh, lord jonathan Sachs, rabbi Sachs had has died he had been ill for a little while it was only really announced fairly recently and there have been notices saying that uh, asking for prayers and saying that there would be prayers in davening for his um i'm sure a lot of people out there probably were unaware of rabbi Sachs, although he had quite a in the united kingdom and in certainly in the world in, in worldwide world jury had a very prominent place he was a remarkable man gary he was uh first and foremost he was a rabbi he was a uh, an orthodox rabbi and uh, very much became the the go-to figure as the representative of british jewry he was a philosopher um he he studied at Cambridge. I think he did his his doctorate in philosophy in King's College in London, where he also was. He held a, a professorship. Um, he was a he was a he was a, an intellectual, but that word that vocation has become rather I don't know immiserated and slightly emptied in the last generation or so but he was an old-fashioned genuine intellectual he had a huge cultural hinterland obviously he had immense knowledge and understanding of the of the bible of the of the torah but on and as well as that he's a great talmudic scholar but it reached beyond that his he had a great he was great he had a great deal of learning of contemporary literature philosophy art as well and formed coalitions around not just 
within world jury but with people of faith and people of no faith around the world he was a man who was his instincts were conservative certainly as which wouldn't surprise you as an orthodox rabbi um if anybody's interested i think you could get it on youtube he gave a speech he was invited to be the principal speaker at a, a colloquium in the vatican which is slightly unusual chief rabbi to do it. he gave the principal speech at the Huma, humanum colloquium on complementarity which was talking about the the notion of complementarity of sexes of male male and female he made them as it says in in the book of genesis um he's interesting because coming from that torah talmudic perspective he comes with with arguments and insights and metaphors that are slightly different you know but re always interesting he was also an incredibly humane man you know even in these cultural wars gary very often when the the, the we come across too often the dominant tone is anger and recrimination you didn't never got that with with rabbi Sachs. it was a man engaged in the process of discovery and trying to discover truth and to communicate the truth as he saw it but not in judgment not in condemnation and not in anger but always to try some way try to find the points of connection based on the notion that we share fundamentally a thing called humanity that as human beings as created creatures we share these certain things in common and it is a great loss and it's hard to imagine i mean not to speak uh, not to be speak ill of the chief rabbi of state rabbi mervis is a very fine man i'm sure but he's he's kind of those one of a he's a once in a generation kind of a figure and he will be greatly missed by people interested in that perspective of that side of life that uh, traditional pers conservative perspective but offering something slightly different Anyway, I, I wanted to bring that to a direct, and I, I, rec I would definitely recommend people who get on their Google and f find out a little bit more about him and have a look on, on YouTube and look for that speech he gave. It's well worth listening to. And it brought, um, it brought the rather august uh, body to its feet you know, with, a, with a standing ovation. Anyway, I suppose, Gary, at that note, we will draw a veil over tonight's proceedings, today's proceedings. And we shall be back on Wednesday. And hopefully we will have other things to talk about other than the American election. Unless, of course, in the every time somebody has found three or 400,000 votes behind the sofa in Pennsylvania and Georgia. And it turns out that Donald did win the thing after all. But if that happens, then that'll be worth talking about. But other than that, we'll, we'll find something to talk about. Even if it's, I don't know, the current state of the economy in Botswana. I mean, that could be a fascinating podcast. Yes, it could be, and it might do well in Botswana. You never know. It's not, Botswana has not traditionally been an area we've had strong listenership pick up on. Yeah, that's something we need to work on. It's mostly the Anglosphere. Well, they speak English in Botswana. Yeah, but is it considered part of the Anglosphere? It was part of the empire. That's the important thing, back in the good old days. When we were 
when we when we were part of the empire too. Yeah, we actually we got uh, we are quite lucky with that because when you look at the amount of Irish people involved in the actual like, running of the empire, but then afterwards we were able to go. We were terribly oppressed and leave the story at that, as opposed to yes, you were. But some of you, if your name is Michael Dwyer, I can tell you, and you meet an Indian who knows anything of their twentieth century history, they don't react well. There was a general Michael Dwyer, Michael Dwyer, Michael O'Dwyer, who did rather to engage in activities which were not well seen and not uh, not well received, and even to this day. So it's a reminder that you know our hands were not always clean, but we got them washed by the uh, narrative of oppression which we've managed, which we cherish to this day. Yeah, was, I mean, you may as well make use of it because it was also true. Because weirdly enough, many things can be true at once. Uh, uh, we, and I promise I'll find you that. I, I, I remember many years ago being at a, little, a drinks party uh, where most of the people would have come from what would have once been, I suppose you call it the unionist community in the south of Ireland. And uh, I was studying at a group of people who had travelled quite widely in in Africa and other places and in many many countries that had been formerly part of the empire and <laughs> one man said you know what every single place I've ever been if you gave them the opportunity to come back into the empire they do it tomorrow and they all nodded and sipped their drinks said absolutely and I just quietly said I don't think everywhere and there's a little moment and they suddenly and they, the penny dropped it oh well yes but i think the thing is we never really thought of ireland as a colony to which i responded mm, and i think you know maybe that was part of the problem but there you go anyway uh we will leave it there we'll be back on wednesday as i said with all the latest news from Botswana. and until then mind yourselves and stay out of the rain all the best